0: Well, hey, we wanna welcome all of you who are joining us online, as well as those of you at our Somerset location. And uh, my name's Austin. I'm one of the pastors here at the Creek and I'm here with Pastor Trevor. And we're gonna be wrapping up the questions Christians don't wanna answer series. And before we get into it, I just wanna say uh, it's been an awesome series. You guys think it's been awesome? (laughs) Hadn't it been an incredible series? Man, Uh, so many questions that uh, Christians don't wanna answer. Uh, No, but but in all seriousness, um, I grew up in church and was kind of around a culture where questions were not really something that uh, Christians were asking for. Uh, It wasn't really, tolerated to go around asking questions, especially if they had difficult answers. And so that's something that I uh, greatly appreciate about our church and about Pastor Trevor. Uh, Whenever Jesse and I were were, uh, looking for a church before we were ever back in church, after we kind of took a little hiatus, um, you know, that was one of the things that attracted me the most um, to this place and and us to this place was because you could ask questions here. Uh, You didn't have to have it all figured out. And so, uh, we'll get this rolling with, yeah. with a, with a question. Um, why do, um, series like this, uh, Q and a uh, series like this and today's Q and a happen. And I know sometimes we're even in like planning meetings and you will intentionally create content uh, for messages that don't have a resolved answer. Uh, why is that part of kind of your philosophy?
1: I think that, um, I think we should all beware of Christians who seemingly have all the answers. Uh, I think we should be aware of churches who seem to portray they have all the answers. Now, we have suspected answers, uh, but not always do we have dogmatic answers. And I think the way that we talk about it, it, it we should have positions and we should have interpretations. But uh, if we're honest with ourselves, and with other people, sometimes we just can't be dogmatic about everything. Uh, many things we can, but some we can't. So I try to purposefully create a little bit of uh, a lack of equilibrium. And and if I can upset someone's apple cart uh, to the point where they go home, they blow the dust off their Bible and read it for themselves. Uh, I think that's a win yeah. because uh, our church has been been gracious enough to allow me to talk about some, you know, whatever I wanted to talk about and to talk about it in ways sometimes uh, that I, I purposefully wanted maybe someone in the audience to think that I was saying one thing when I, when I really wasn't saying it, but I was okay with them thinking that I was saying it. because. If I can create a lack of equilibrium, then people learn to find balance for themselves. And if people learn to find balance for themselves, think for themselves, investigate for themselves, and they will be much, much better suited to do what this series was was purposed for to begin with, to allow us to be able to have conversations about questions uh, that people may ask us. Because we see the culture asking questions and we need to be talking about what the, t- the culture's talking about and even questions that perhaps people inside the church are thinking, but they're just, they've been raised to think that, hey, if I ask a question about this, I feel like God's gonna, you know, smoke me. He's gonna pull out the smoter and, and it's just gonna be smote city. The smoter. And, and yeah, he's gonna, he's gonna open up a can of smote on me. And um, so, you know, I, th- I think that many times we're wrestling with these things and then we get defeated because we feel like we're the only ones when the community of faith ought to be such that we're talking about these questions and and learning how to have conversations where I don't make my position sound dogmatic, and I don't dismiss your position because if I'm dogmatic about my position or dismissive of your position, the conversation ends mm. and the influence ends. So if we can learn to do, as Peter said, to, to conversate respectfully and with gentleness, then uh, I'm not gonna be dogmatic. I'm not gonna power up on you and you're not gonna be dogmatic and power up on me and we're not gonna dismiss each other's points of views and that way we can have a real conversation. And for Christians, we believe after that, Jesus can hold his own.
0: There you go. Love it. All right. So um, we'll start off with a a real easy one for you. Uh, If God told Adam and Eve not to eat the apple, then why do we still eat the apple today? And they put a little little smiley face at the end of it for you. I appreciated that.
1: Yeah, that's a fun one. Um, You know, when uh, these questions started coming in, and uh, of course, let me say this, We, we got lots of questions. And and if you ask a question that you don't hear us talk about today, know probably why we didn't do it. Uh, Jesus didn't answer everybody's question, depending on who asked it, why they were asking and where they were asking it. Uh, And you can read about that when he went to the temple one day and they said, hey, by what authority do you do what you do? And Jesus said, okay, well, first, let me ask you a question. John's baptism, was it of God or was it of himself? And they didn't really know what to say because if they said of God, Jesus would have said, why didn't you listen to John? And if they would have said, oh, it was of John, they would have said, hey, we believe he's a prophet and they would have lost the support of the people. And so they looked at Jesus and said, I don't know. And then Jesus looked at them and said, well, neither will I tell you about what authority I do these things. Uh, and Jesus very well knew by what authority he, do, he knew he did those things, but yet he, he didn't answer every question. But but this is a good question because I think it highlights something bigger. Uh, for one, just so that we all know it doesn't say apple in in the text. Uh, I I got a feeling somebody didn't like an apple, so they just said, Hey, God said, don't eat the apple. Uh, I feel like it should have been the pomegranate or not the pomegranate, but the grapefruit. (laughs) I mean, God only knows why the grapefruit exists. And um, I mean, other than to to lose weight, why would you put something in your mouth that tastes like that? Unless you think you're getting some kind of aesthetic benefit from it. Mm -hmm. Um, So, so, you know, whatever the reason, but I think that it highlights a bigger, bigger idea for us. Is Christians have a real tendency, and, and non Christians too, to read the parts of Scripture uh, and to get fixated on parts while missing the point. And, and the point of the narrative in the garden is to simply remind us about the fallen, broken nature of man, and that ultimately, when left to ourselves, we will choose uh, what is undermining to our own future and our own well being, that left to ourselves, we will choose in the opposite direction of what God chooses for us. And, and so to get fixated on the parts of it, and, and the thing that I wasn't really quite aware of uh, was that there are a lot of people who have very strong opinions about what the fruit was. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's, a, there's a large contingency of people who believe it was the banana. Some people believe it was the pomegranate. Mark Twain, it was kind of the one who got the the, the apple thing started. I found out that he he referenced as an apple, but you you don't find apple. Matter of fact, if you want to be technical about it in Genesis one, God allows them to eat all the fruit of the trees that have seeds within it. So an apple has seeds within it. So it already tells us that it was good to go. So, you know, the apple thing is not a big deal, but the point is, that we're fallen, we choose that which is not in our best interest and that there is always a decision whether to trust God's way or my way. And from the very beginning, we have always struggled to choose God's way over our way. And that's the point of that initial thing. But I think that the learning moment is that we can read the parts and get so locked into the parts that we miss, miss the point.
0: Yeah, well, speaking of uh, differentiating between God's way and my way, uh, this is a great question that came in how do I differentiate between my desires for my life and God's desires for my life?
1: And I think the church is to blame for, for this conundrum because we say things like many Christians, and maybe you're guilty of this. So maybe right now, somebody in your life, they're going through a difficult time, they're asking you for you know, advice and, and you've said to them recently, what's your heart telling you to do? If that's your attempt at giving a good advice, stop it. <laughs> just, just knock it off and stop it. Uh, you know, we say this, just you know, so listen to your heart. What's your heart telling you? You know, just just let the Lord speak to your heart. And, and listen, I'm, I, I, I read a lot and I'm not even sure what God speaking to the heart really even means. <laughs> and and, and to, to try to discern that and to try to differentiate that is, is a lot of pressure. Um, so I think that, you know, we go through life thinking that, you know, the heart is trustworthy when the scriptures Uh, say something completely different. Jeremiah the prophet said that the heart is deceptively wicked above all and who can know it? Uh, Even Jesus, Jesus, if you want to leave the Old Testament out of it and just go to Jesus, Jesus said that out of the heart come all our sin problems. So why in the world would we ever want to trust our heart. So in the end, the only way to determine whether is this what I wanna do, you know, or is this what God wants me to do, is it both, or, you know, is it in conflict with each other? I think the only ultimate determination is the scriptures. And the scriptures shed light on the fact of, of what my desires should be in light of what God has told me about his desires. Yeah. So when my desires are contrary to what I discover God's desires are, then I should abandon my desires and embrace God's desire. When, when both of those mesh up, which they can from time to time, then, then I should just embrace the joy of that and just keep on trucking because I think that's what Jesus meant. Matthew 6:33 when he said seek first the kingdom of God and all this other stuff will be added. Yeah. You know, when you're seeking first the kingdom of God, you know, my desires often fall in line with his desires. Jesus said, you know, that where your treasure is there will your heart be also. So when I'm when I'm living by the proper value system, all this stuff just gets in line, and, and that's the locomotive that's, that's driving the rest of the train. It's not to say that, you know, we can't get out of balance and, and go off the rails from time to time, but the only way of knowing whether your desire is the same as God's desire is ultimately the scripture. And when you find conflict between the two, you have the same choice that we've had from the very beginning. Yeah. Your way or God's way. And often, often we've not handled that decision very well.
0: Yeah. Well, I'm a pretty... Uh a pretty emotional guy. And uh, there've been lots of times in my life on this subject where- How are you
1: feeling today? I'm feeling great,
0: man. Feeling okay. <laughs> yeah. to make We should sure. have talked about this before though. Okay. <laughs> it's not the appropriate time. Uh, but on the subject of God's will or his desires, my desires, you know, a lot of times I, I would get to points in my life along my journey with Christ where, you know, I would come to a, a crossroads and it would be like, I've got these two choices and I would like stress big time over it and, you know, couldn't figure it out. And I've come to realize sometimes in those situations, God's just like, here's two choices, son, pick. You know what I mean? And I'm like stressing about something where he's just like, and and one one pastor said it this way that really helped me. He said, um, if you're walking in his ways, then you'll be walking in his will, that there's room for. See,
1: that was worth your trip right there, right there. You should just write that down. (laughs) I wish I had said it. I wish I was And then then we could just go home, but we're not gonna do that. So, but you should write it down. That was good. It was a good one
0: helped me anyway um uh, more about my problems um uh, being emotional um I feel greatly right I, I'm, I'm kind of emotion driven I like to feel what God's doing and I don't even know what that means but uh, you know sometimes like if you're not feeling it not you but you anybody I'm like what's wrong with you you're not feeling it um this question came in and they said why can't I feel the presence of God
1: I I hear that a lot, Um, I've thought that a lot, Um, and I think that the church, once again, is to blame. Um, I think that we, we say things that are not exactly true or we we say things in such a way that portray something that's not exactly true. And, And theology matters. I know it just seems like a boring thing for a lot of folks, but theology matters greatly because it really begins to shape and color how we see and respond to everything around us. And this idea of feeling God's presence is an interesting thing because the scriptures never tell us to go feel the presence of God. And and it's, it's a big difference to think about going and living life seeking, you know, a feeling uh, because of the presence of God, the Bible just presents the reality of the presence of God, that, that God's presence is a reality, that God is everywhere. You know, Psalm has said, you can't run, you can't get away. There's no place too high, no place too low that you can get away from the presence of God. You know, Jesus said, I'll be with you even into the end of the world. You know, the writer of Hebrews said, I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. You know, so what the scriptures paint is this idea that God is present, hmm. So it's a very different approach to say, I'm looking for the feeling of God's presence rather than I trust in the reality of God's presence and I'm going to respond to that reality whether I feel it or not. Now, this changes the culture and dynamic of a church service. When when corporate believers get together, you know, if we all wait to respond to God with a feeling, God may be waiting a long time for us to respond to Him. But if we operate with the mindset that God is here, whether it's here when we're all gathered together or whether He is here where I am by myself, I have then the opportunity to respond to the presence of God. And so that's why we sing. That's why we clap when we're together. That's why some folks raise their hand. That's why you know, some folks are praying and just offering you know, you know, gratitude to God because we're responding not to a feeling but to a, to a reality. And besides that, feelings are not a gauge of what's true or not. So uh, I think that you know losing the terminology. You know sometimes in church you'll say people will say I've said it before. Hey, we're we're gonna usher we're gonna usher ourselves into the presence of God. Well, I know what we meant by that, but it's not a true statement. He was already here before we got ushered or not. <laughs> and, and and so he he was in the car ride over, and it, and it paints this picture yeah. that God again resides within walls made by man, rather than the sense that we are the temple, of the Holy Spirit, and the glory and the presence of God dwells within us, and that every Everywhere we are, God is. God is always present. And and that reality then brings a consciousness of how I'm living my life. Uh, Because we all live better when someone's watching. And if we could get ourselves mentally to the place where we know that God is there, He is listening, He sees, He's observing, uh, He's always present, I can't help but think um, that that would change the way we respond. Uh, That's a hard place to get to, at least it is for me, to consciously be aware of that. Um, You know, we would not lose our temper as much. We wouldn't say some things, we wouldn't do some things, pray wouldn't go some places. uh, We'd make some different decisions. Um, So I think that, and and two on that, if I could just take about 45 seconds, plus... 10 or 12, um, that I think sometimes we're responding to what someone called the soundtrack of our minds Mm. uh, that we think that we we have emotion based on the outside in but really the reality is we we experience emotions from the inside out and the way i like to think about this is that you have you know a person who gets called fat and because of the inner soundtrack of their mind because of insecurity and because this has happened to them you know more than a few occasions in their life someone says you're fat and they cry you take another person who gets called fat and they laugh because they look at that person and they see them as an infantile, insecure person who tries to be little other people to make themselves feel better about themselves. And and the difference being that there's a different soundtrack in their minds. So they're both, both, you know, responding to the same stimuli, but their emotional consequence is much different because of the soundtrack. Mm. So I think, you know, when it comes to wanting to experience God and the presence of God, which we all, we, we want to have those special times with God Um, sometimes when when God uh, emotionally feels distant for me even though I know he's not but when God emotionally feels distant to me uh, I often find that it's my own baggage that is causing God to feel emotionally distant to me and what I like to do is I like to get into a room or like drive down the road or close the door of my office cut some music on maybe not and and just I know you're gonna think this is weird but but I, I will I will imagine Jesus because I think a healthy image of God begins with Jesus and feeling close to God begins with Jesus. I I will imagine Jesus saying to me the things that he said in the gospels. I imagine often Jesus looking at me and saying, Trevor, neither do I condemn you, go and sin no more. And I'll say that out loud to myself, Trevor, neither do I condemn you, go and sin no more. I try to imagine what his face must have looked like in John chapter eight. I try to imagine what his tone was like, Trevor, neither do I condemn you, go and sin no more or I try to imagine you know, Jesus talking to his disciples but talking to me, fear not, Trevor. You know that I'm with you. You know that I'm with you, fear not, I am with you. Hmm. And to try to begin to reinvent my soundtrack in my head based on all the baggage I've been through, all the crazy things that I've done, all the mistakes that I've made, all, all the sin that I've opened the door to in the course of my life and how guilt and shame and all of those emotions and fear and cowardice and all that can just start you know, flooding in to then begin to change the soundtrack based on Jesus, because He is the perfect image of God. And I find that when I embrace that, I begin to feel different. Yeah. And, and I think that's a, a good place to start.
0: Yeah, that's awesome. Man, that was worth your trip today, by the way. <laughs> that was good stuff. Um, so shifting gears just a little bit. You said in week two of the series, you said something is worth believing if it's rational, supported by the evidence, and if it best explains all the data. So doesn't that eradicate the need for faith? And how do you reconcile that with faith?
1: I know that your group had a big discussion about that. Yeah. Um, other people, you know, pulled me aside, some friends called me and said, ah, you're messing with my mind, you know, <laughs> tell me how this works. And, and I, I think that, you know, it's an important, an important thing to know that we don't follow Jesus because of faith, we follow Jesus by faith. Mm-hmm. And, and that's a really important distinction. Uh, Hebrews 11:1 one through three gives us the only definition of faith that we find in the New Testament, you know, and, and to paraphrase that, you know, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence or the assurance of things not seen. And, and then he goes on to say that, you know, that we believe that God is and that he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him and that, that faith is believing that God is, that God keeps his promises. So, I, you know, the way that I process this is the idea that faith it's just not belief, faith is trust. But in order to have faith, it begins with the foundation of information. Information is the foundation of faith. There can be no faith apart from knowledge. That's the reason, you know, God would speak to his people in the Old Testament and say, my people are being destroyed for a lack of knowledge. Well, they had a faith problem, but one of the reasons they had a faith problem, they had a knowledge problem. Knowledge and faith always go hand in hand. And and, you know, Peter, he even said, "I, I, I desire that you would grow in grace and knowledge of the truth, because as our faith grows, knowledge grows, because there's this idea that our faith is built on information and knowledge and evidence. And then it takes us to a particular point where the final step is faith. You know, there's always gonna be this element of faith that I I can't know anything for sure. And in light of not being able to know anything for sure, I'm gonna respond to the evidence and I'm going to take the last step of faith. And the faith is trust. So I believe the evidence, and even people who don't follow Jesus, who are agnostic, you know, atheist leaning people, they look at history and from a historical perspective, they say it's a historical fact, Jesus lived, he died, he was buried, and it's a historical fact that his followers at least believed that he was raised from the dead. So at that point, that, that's, that's historical fact from people who don't even believe in Jesus so that's historical fact now I have to take all of that evidence based on what I know what I've seen what I've experienced what I read through the scriptures what I know about humanity how I know I would have responded and then it leads me to believe that that Jesus is worth trusting and then you commit your life to him that's the faith part but the reason that we you know believe that God is it's not because of faith. We believe that God is because of evidence. We talked about that. If the universe is designed, there must be a designer. If the universe is an effect, there must be a cause. And so there's evidence for God. But in the end, I have to take a step of faith concerning God in the same way with Jesus. So I, I, don't, I think that knowledge and faith both work together. And if you're trying to have faith without information, you don't have very good faith.
0: Yeah, for sure. Um, This question uh, shifts gears just a touch. This person wants to know, if I was really saved, why am I having so much trouble with sin in my life?
1: You're just a horrible person. (laughs) Obviously, that's not true. Um, I would say because you have a pulse and you're breathing and you're living. Um, You know, I think... Many of us were presented, Austin, with this idea that, or I was, you know, the three P's of sin. I heard always growing up that Jesus saves us from the penalty of sin, the power of sin, and one day he's going to save us from the presence of sin. Amen, glory, (laughs) hallelujah. And it would almost sound as though that when you follow Jesus, then you just, you get everything ironed out. And even though that anyone who is paying attention knows that's not true, you get the sense that that's the way it's supposed to be. And so then again, the soundtrack of your mind begins to respond to all of that and you begin to carry all this baggage. But, but here's the good news, the Apostle Paul, one of the greatest chapters in all of the scripture that I'm so grateful to God that God put in there was Romans chapter seven when Paul, like the man Paul, who wrote like almost half of the, the New Testament alongside Luke, uh, Paul said, you know, I've discovered something. The things that I say that I'm gonna do, I don't do. And the things that I swear, you know, I'm never gonna do again, I end up doing. That makes me feel really good about myself. <laughs> I'm not sure if it's supposed yeah. to, but it does. <laughs> because it, it lets me know that the New Testament does not present this, this, this idealistic uh, imagined version of faith. This is a very real thing where we're working out our salvation, fear and trembling, you know, Paul wrote to the Philippians, that, that we're working this thing out and we're ironing out the wrinkles as we go. And we're not gonna be without wrinkle until Jesus presents us to the Father, faultless, without spot, without blemish, without wrinkle. But in the meantime, you know, I'm in this process of what church people call sanctification. I'm working out the wrinkles. And from time to time, we get some wrinkles ironed out and then we fall in a hole and we get dirty and we get wrinkled again. We have to get back up and start the process again. But I would say that struggling with sin is a two-sided coin because, you know, you come to faith, and, and you're working out lots, lots of wrinkles. But then, let's say that you're, you're really following Jesus and you're, you're getting close in your relationship with your heavenly father and you're, you're working some wrinkles out, you've come a long way. But here, here's what I've experienced, I don't know if you've experienced this, but what I've experienced is that the closer that you get in your relationship with your heavenly father, the more that you see the wrinkles. And and you see things that are not pleasing to him and you see things that need to be ironed out and worked out, things that didn't even bother you before, things that you weren't even conscious of before, things that you you would have never paid attention to before because as you get closer to the light and, you know, the Holy Spirit shines a light in there to some of those dark places, you're like, oh, I didn't even know, I I didn't even realize I did that. You know, that's never bothered me before. And all of a sudden you feel like, you know, the Holy Spirit is dealing with you and, and you begin to work out even the finer wrinkles. So I think, you know, until we get to the end of our salvation and, and at the end of it all, when Jesus works it all and restores it all, we're, we're, gonna, we're gonna struggle through this sin thing. But I think the way that we think about it and the way that we respond to it is, is really, really important because guilt and shame and all of that is so easy. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's become part of the package in evangelism for, for decade after decade after decade in this, yeah. co- in, in this country. And I think knowing ultimately, ultimately that Jesus dealt with my sin problem at the cross that he bore the sin of the world mm. and that there, there's no sin left for God to feel ill about with me. It's done, it's, yeah. it's settled forever. I'm working it out on this side, but in, in the big reality of things, when, when God sees me, he, he sees me as his son, he sees you as his daughter and, and to know that I'm loved by the father and that I'm responding in the way that I live from a place of he loves me and I love him rather than I'm worried that he's mad at me and I'm trying to, to get him to feel better about me. Yeah. Uh, so I think you know how we feel about it, respond to it and, and, and I think those are, it's a big discussion but there's two sides of the coin.
0: Yeah, so it's almost as if the fact that you're having so much trouble with your sin now could be indicative, could be evidence of the fact that yeah, you are his child.
1: Plus I think it's a hey, point for you that you care. Yeah. Some so, don't. point for you that you care because again that's a good place to be Uh, you know having a seared conscience where you're not bothered Mm -hmm. is a dangerous place to be and but to be at a place where you're sensitive to what's going on in your life uh, that that's a that's a healthy thing but again you know how we deal with it and how we handle it and how we allow it to make us feel towards God and how we think that God feels towards us We have to keep that in check with what we know is true based on the scriptures. Yeah. Uh,
0: So something else that you you said during the series was that while scripture is inerrant, our interpretations of scripture are not inerrant or at least have the potential to be in error. Um, So this question is, how is it possible to have deep convictions knowing that our interpretations of the Bible can be flawed?
1: Yeah, that one really threw people off. through, through the series. Cause you know, um, I have certain friends, some friends, you know, they, but certain friends, when I know they're asking me about the message, I know I must have really like said something I'm like, you know, <laughs> and then I have to go back. But you know, I, I never got the idea listening to, to the church I grew up in, or, you know, even some of the other churches I became acquainted with, I never got the idea that their interpretation or at that time, our interpretations were fallible. Hmm. I, it was just the word of God and, and to, to not be able to, to separate the infallible text from fallible interpretation was, it was like one and the same. And that's, that's a, that's a dangerous place when you see those two things. But I think in having convictions, deep convictions, um, even though our interpretations can be fallible, uh, for me is resolved in the idea that there are first tier beliefs, second tier beliefs, third tier beliefs in level of importance. So let's take, you know, take, uh, take uh, creation for example. Uh, believing that God is the creator of heaven and earth. Believing that God created, that's first tier. Now, a discussion on how God did it, that is not first tier. I'm not even certain if it's second tier or third tier. It's an interesting discussion. It makes for great intramural scrimmages among Christians. <laughs> and we debate this and talk about this. And, you know, we, we can argue about this. But believing that God created, that, that's most important. How he did it is a less important discussion. Now, if, if you don't know how to value different things, of beliefs and theology, then you will spend your time and passion and energy trying to convince someone of the how, when the how is really inconsequential to the what. And so the what is God created. That's the big deal. Now, let's talk about the how. That's fun. There's differing opinions. Really smart people have not agreed on this, you know, for a very long time. Same thing with the coming again of Jesus, you know, that he's coming again, hey, right up here, first tier. How he's going to do it, when he's going to do it. You know, is there really a horse or not a horse? Is it uh, pre-mid, pre-trip, post-trip, pre-millennial, post-millennial? You know, some of you are like, what? Is that going to be a real tattoo
0: on his thigh?
1: I think so, absolutely. (laughs) Um, It's the only, yeah, but anyway. uh, But but to understand there's differences. Baptism, baptism. We think baptism, you know, is like, hey... baptism is a pretty clear thing, but how you get baptized, you know, people argue about this. Do you have to get fully wet? Halfway wet?
0: <laughs>
1: we save a lot of money on t-shirts if we didn't have to get people fully wet. That's true. But, we, the, but I think, you know, it's these, the, those parts are preferences. Those parts are ideas based on text and based on, you know, various interpretations. But the most important thing, because what I love to remind Baptist people all the time is there have been people around the world who lived in parts of the world in history that there was not enough water to em- Immerse them, <gasps> but it doesn't make them less Christian. That's just, that's just a process. It's not, it's not the most important thing. So I think, you know, I am, I am completely settled that God is the creator of the universe, how he did it. I don't know, we're still looking into it. I'm totally convinced that jesus christ is the son of god that he died for our sins he was buried he was raised on the third day i I am settled on that i believe what jesus said about the father i believe that he revealed the father to us and i believe that he is going to ultimately restore all things to himself and i'm 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 there on that and the the rest hey we we can debate it perhaps we should debate it and uh and we have been and i suspect we will that's why the creeds are important uh, you know, some, some denominations, they use the creeds, the, the apostles' band? creed, the band. <laughs> hey, uh, we we did listen back in football camp, but uh, <laughs> I just remember, but you know, you've got, you've got the apostles' creed, the Nicene creed, which, which have established what has been known as orthodox Christianity. And just for the record, I think, whatever i think that american christians should lose the term evangelical i just think we should political groups have hijacked the term evangelical i prefer the term orthodox i prefer that term because hey this is the orthodox belief of what christians have believed from the very beginning evangelical might as well be a political action group these days because people don't even know what it means Mm -hmm. and and so we lost the term but but you know the creeds established hey these are the first order non-negotiable things Stick by those and then we can talk about the rest.
0: Yeah. So first order, God created, right? But when I was growing up, I was a Christian in school and I came from a place where um, basically if someone spoke, if the teacher started talking about evolution, I was basically doing this in my seat. You know, like taking a stand for Jesus. That's what I thought I was doing. Oh <laughs> uh, yeah, everybody look at me. I'm not listening to this. If it came up on the test, I would just not answer it or or whatever. But God did it, something like that. And, uh, you know, real smartly. So this came up in our group, our, our small group, um, the day after you talked about um, creation. And, and you used terminology um, like Big Bang and evolution. Um, and there was some people in our group that were like, when he said Big Bang, just like it was a... A truth. I was like,
1: oh, you can't say
0: that. You can't do that. Like uh, it just really took them back. And then as you went on, they kind of, you know, eased into it, which uh, we talked about it in a group, which is another great reason to be in a group. It's so important um, to have these conversations. But um, this question that came in right along those same lines is, is it possible to be a Bible believing Christian and believe in evolution at the same time?
1: Yeah, again... Like, you know, like first tier that God created, how he did it, was it millions of years? Was it, you know, less than millions of years? Um, that That's up for discussion and really smart people are having, having that debate and really smart people are looking at all the evidence and um, sometimes they go this way with it, sometimes they go that way with it. I think it's really important though how we talk about these things. I grew up, you know, and again, we're all carrying baggage. And and one of the reasons why our vision statement here at our church is we want to be a church where people don't like church love to attend is because I know what it's like to hate going to church. I know what it's like in having questions and wrestling with these things and feeling as though you're doing it all by yourself and laying down at night terrified in the reality that perhaps hell is real and I'm some type of blasphemer and I have no one and no place to go to get answers to my questions. I, I remember that vividly. It, I, you know, they talk about praying the sinner's prayer. I prayed the sinner's prayer every night from seven years old to 17 years old. Just, I didn't know, just in case it didn't take or something. It's like, you know, don't laugh at me. If you've ever prayed the sinner's prayer more than once, raise your hand. That's what I thought. Come on now. Typically we would do it late Friday night. <laughs> and then again, Saturday night. <laughs> May, Saturday night, Sunday, we were in church all day. We kind of forgot about it on Sunday. We were feeling pretty good about salvation on Sunday night, yeah. but then it started back again on Monday. But you know, there's really smart people, you know, it was presented like, hey, if you believe you can't, you cannot believe evolution and, and, and sign up for Jesus at the same time, because it was a one for all proposition. Hmm. If, you, if you were gonna follow Jesus, you had to sign up for everything in here being the interpretation of where you were in that context and if you couldn't sign all you know couldn't check every box then then you really couldn't follow jesus or at least that was the the way it was presented in in the ears of many people so i I would say that lots of people who follow jesus love jesus believe the scriptures cs lewis one of my one of my heroes uh he he believed in theistic evolution tim keller who's voice of conservative christianity uh, new york city uh, redeemer presbyterian he's theistic evolution. Uh, I mentioned the guy that I read a lot of his books, um, <clears throat> Francis Collins is a proponent of theistic evolution. And there's a whole bunch of folks who do. So, you know, the moment that we ever take our first tier and then, then we elevate the second and third tier up here and we try to de-Christianize people because they disagree on the how is, is not um, it is not profitable for any of us. And, and beyond that, we have to understand our stereotype in our culture that many Christians are looked at as anti-science and anti-intellectualism. And that the way that we talk about science it can create a bridge rather than a barrier with people who are far from God to know that they don't have to chuck science at the door, that science is just the study of the natural world. And we believe as Christians that God has revealed himself through the natural world. So we have nothing to be afraid of. Yeah. And, and whatever whatever is discovered, if it's ever discovered you know, beyond you know, any conceivable, reasonable doubt that, hey, here it is, You know, I feel like Christians ought to just be like, no matter what it is, like, ah, that's so incredible. I'm so glad he did it that way. You know, I'm so impressed. You know, I wonder why he decided to do it that way. We know that he did it. Why obsess about the how? Um, I feel like that that gets us into unprofitable territory. Yeah.
0: Yeah, we actually had one of the ladies in our group, whenever that came up, uh, she said, she said, when I went to school and they talked about the Big Bang and they described it, she was like, that sounds like what God did, you know, which is just like totally the opposite of.
1: And two, how I you did. know, uh, it it occurs to me that you know, both sides, as I said, have the crazy uncles, and, and we, we pick we pick we pick the people. To make you know visible straw men out of, and Darwin was always made a you know a straw man because of his Origin of the Species. But the interesting thing that a lot of people, and I'm not making a case for anything, and that's what frustrates so many of you. Uh, it's like, well, just <laughs> tell us what you think. No, I'm not. I don't think I will. Uh, <clears throat> so, um, but what what he what he believed was, you know, he was a theist. It, uh, he considered himself a theist, you know, towards the latter end of his life. But when he wrote The Origin of Species, Darwin never anticipated that what he was writing created a problem for faith. He, he didn't see that in any way. Um, many of us were presented with this idea that Darwin said to undermine faith in general. And and even though he had some faith background and, and you know, he, obviously everybody has an angle, but he never saw a disconnect between what he was saying and, and people of faith. Uh, he, he tracked things back to the trunk, you know, all these species as they were coming forth and back to the trunk. But the thing that he never dealt with was where did the trunk come from? (laughs) So that's, that's where we stay as Christians. It's on where something came from nothing that's yeah. our strong ground yeah. that's that's where we've got logic and rationale on our side things look designed ah oh, there must be a designer oh this whole thing is an effect and there are laws that are governing this whole thing and keeping things in check and balance that did not exist a nanosecond before the big bang we have rational thought on our side because if there's an effect there must be a cause. So, to stay out of the how, because smart people disagree about that, but I'm telling you, everybody out there knows that nothing gave birth to something, and everybody's trying to figure out, at least in the sciences, how that happens, but Christians, hey, we kind of, kind of already there. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Well, uh, I think one of the most beneficial discussions that we've been having lately is what this thing we call the Bible is. It really is because a lot of times we we get to these places where we're having all these questions, right? Like you were talking about. And if we don't see this correctly, then we cannot, we can't answer those questions correctly. Um, And so the differences between Old Testament and New Testament, where this stuff came from and all that. We got two questions. I'm gonna try to roll them into one real quick for you. Um, So in the Old Testament, uh, you talked about this. Were people actually doing what God was telling them to do? Like when they did these terrible things? or were they misinterpreting what God wanted them to do? But God took the blame anyway, and then the follow-up to that would be, how should we read the Old Testament and what value does it have?
1: Yeah, and again, I would say the only reason Christians care about the Old Testament is because of Jesus. Hmm. We're, we're predominantly Gentile, non-Jewish people, uh, and the only reason we care about the Old Testament is because Jesus taught that the Old Testament ultimately pointed to him. So when we read the Old Testament, if you had never had any any prior knowledge of Jesus, I know it's kind of hard to get there, but if you'd never had any prior knowledge of Jesus and just started at Genesis 1 and went through the book of Malachi, uh, you would be living your life in a very different way if you were trying to adhere to what you read on those pages. Honest, honest truth. There was a, there was a, a medical doctor's wife in, um, in Middlesboro that when, that when she first came into the country, uh, into our country, the United States, and into, you know, like almost a subcountry, which is down in Bell County and uh, of the United States. Uh, her family had never had, had never had any exposure to Christian faith, Jewish faith or anything at all. Somebody gave them an Old Testament coming into the country and she remembers her family offering sacrifices from their farm animals wow. while she was a kid. Because what else would you do if you're trying to follow this holy book that someone says, hey, this is the word of God. Well, then you get over to the New Testament and once you discover Jesus and find out what Jesus did and now the New Testament's helping us make sense of the consequences of the wake of what Jesus did, well, you have to go back and reread the whole thing. because now it's, it's an entirely different book. It's an entirely different application. It's an entirely different interpretation in light of Jesus. So when we go back and read the Old Testament, all of us now should be reading it in light of Jesus. This, this points to Jesus. It also gives us the, the meta-narrative of what you know, theologians call you know, the meta-narrative, the big story of creation, fall, redemption. And then ultimately one day God is going to consummate the whole thing and restore all things back to the way that he desired it in its original function. So we we get the whole big idea, but also we read the story, you know, Genesis 1 through 11, the seed bed of the whole Bible. You know, we get, we get the whole drama plot right there in the beginning that God chooses one man, one nation, and out of that nation, he's going to send the Messiah to rescue and redeem all the nations. And, And so we read the old Testament not to figure out, you know, what laws to obey because we've been set free from that covenant. We are not part of that covenant. It is no longer there. We are new covenant, new Testament Christians. So we go back, we can glean principles from it, truth from it, wisdom from it. We can read how real people and real women in real time, you know, how they responded and tried to make sense of their faith and the context. But, but it serves as pointing us to Jesus. It also reminds us of the grand narrative that we're all part of where this thing started, where this thing is heading. And, but we always interpret it in light Jesus in the New Testament specifically those troublesome passages about you know violence and things we talked about last week because I think and there's other people who you know disagree and that's okay uh, and and you may not see it this way and that's okay too uh, but I cannot ignore the Old Testament because I believe it's inspired and infallible and I cannot reject it because I believe it's inspired and infallible so I have to come up with something and and, and what I see in those passages are, are a bit troubling emotionally and you know a, a much deeper part of me it, it's it's unsettling so I believe that we interpret the Old Testament a lot of Jesus and like I said last week on the cross Jesus looks guilty he's not guilty he takes the blame though he's not responsible he allows sin to run its full course and if that's what I find true of Jesus I know that that must be what God has always done. He has stood with sinners. He has stood in the place of the guilty. He has assumed the guilt, though not guilty. He took the blame, though not he, though he wasn't to blame. And that, you know, he just takes upon himself the sins of his people. And the reason I think that is because I, it's what I see in Jesus. And it's what I see him doing. And if that's the shadow, well, I would have came away with an entirely different idea of what that shadow meant if I had not had the substance mm. to make sense of the shadow. Yeah. So why should I allow the shadow to stand on its own when I've got the substance that I can take the substance back and say, okay, that's what the shadow must really mm. be. And, and so that, that works for me. And it, you know, it, uh, it allows me to be uh, what I think true to the text. And... Um, but other people come down in different ways on it, and that's okay too, they have the right to be wrong. And, uh, <laughs> no, nah. but that's,
0: that's, that's where I'm at on it. All right, awesome. Uh, real quickly, and then we'll, we'll wrap this up. Um, somebody wrote in about a situation where one of their children has been molested, and their abuser was found guilty by social services, but not by the judicial system. She was considered, the, the, the child was considered too young to be a credible witness. So this person was never punished. He goes to church now somewhere. I know if he truly believes and follows Jesus that he'll go to heaven. But my question is, will his transgression against my child be addressed there? Do people who do bad things on earth, but then find Jesus ever have to deal with the things
1: that they did? Yeah, that is a, uh, first of all, you know, as a parent, I'm so, uh, I couldn't imagine what, what that would have been like and what that is like. Um, but, you know, it, that is, that's difficult. And, and that's one of those things I imagine, um, even though I don't know what it's like to be in that particular position, I imagine there's no emotionally satisfying position to, to help, you know, in in that because nothing's going to undo what has been done. But, you know, when I first saw that late last night, when it came in, I was like, Wow. And I had to think about that for a moment. And the first thing that came to my mind was, I imagine there had to be some people in the local church that felt that way about the Apostle Paul. That when Paul became part of the New Testament church, the fallout of his sin and the consequences of his sin were present within the church because some had been put to death, some had been imprisoned, And now all of a sudden here he is and he he's like part of the leadership Mm -hmm. eventually and i can only imagine that you know perhaps for the for the family of stephen left behind if he was married if he was a father his children if his father was alive his mother was alive that that you know those were very real issues that the church had to do with had to deal with but you know the good news of the gospel is called good news for a reason and, and what we understand about what Jesus did, that he dealt with our sin on the cross. And for someone who embraces Jesus and follows Jesus, uh, that sin is forever dealt with there. Yeah. And, but I also believe that for those of us who are following Jesus and trying to make sense of our faith, um, you know, the scars of our sin, uh, even though they may heal, the scars are always present and sometimes THE WORST PUNISHMENT OF SIN IS WHAT SIN CAN LEAVE BEHIND EVEN WHEN SIN HAS BEEN FORGIVEN AND, and YOU'RE TRYING TO MAKE SENSE OF IT. And, AND I THINK SHE POINTED OUT, TOO, THAT SHE'S DONE HER BEST TO FORGIVE AND, and WHATNOT, yeah. BUT I, I THINK THAT, YOU KNOW, THE GOSPEL SAYS, NO, THAT SIN WAS DEALT WITH. YOU NEVER KNOW WHAT THAT PERSON'S GOING THROUGH, YOU KNOW, AND THOUGH, YOU KNOW, PROBABLY IF I WERE A PARENT, I WOULD WANT TO, mm, YOU KNOW. <laughs> Yeah, that, and I get that, but then, you know, we have to pull back and we have to say, okay, this is, this is the scripture. I I forgive, I let that go. I mean, I release, I release any right to penalize you or punish you. And if the state isn't going to do, can't do whatever, I have no control over that. But what I do have control over is my forgiveness of you. And what I do uh, is I have understanding of how God views the sin. And once God forgives the sin, he doesn't bring it back up. Yeah. You know, Psalms 103 takes it away. Um, and, and sometimes we want, we want punishment, we want justice. And the part that we often don't think about it, there was punishment and there was justice. And Jesus yeah. stood in that place and took it for all of us and and that's that's the gospel and that's where it hits really close to home and that's where we can see the pain of life meeting with the beauty of the gospel and that's when we're reminded of our own sin which was death the wages of which were death but yet the gift of god's eternal life so you know we are all destined for condemnation until Jesus steps in and how we respond to that free gift. So that's a great question. And, um, I hope that that makes a little sense of it.
0: That's tough stuff, man. And, um, a lot of this stuff is deep. It's complex. It's not simple. It requires effort, uh, to even get into the weeds of some of these things. And so uh, we've had some people ask about books that you've been reading as you prepare for this series we've got a couple of those available um at the bookstore already we got this one uh, stealing from god and we have i don't have enough faith to be an atheist those are both available and you also have a list of books that you've that you've um been reading preparing for this and uh we're going to put those on a social media post for you guys this coming week so be looking for that and um those have you know very many different voices and opinions and aren't necessarily speaking for. Yeah, we're not endorsing necessarily,
1: but we think they're good books to read and consider. Yeah. you know.
0: So be looking for that on social media. We're gonna end with this question. Uh, This person wants to know, how do you sum up why to have faith and believe the Bible? So how do you persuade someone to have faith and believe the Bible in five minutes if they're a
1: non-believer? Yeah. Well, for one, you're taking on yourself way too much pressure. to convince somebody of the Bible. <laughs> um, you know, and the thing that you should start with and the best place to start with and really the only place to start is Jesus. Hmm. You know, it's what Peter said, be ready to give an answer for the hope that lies within you and the hope being Jesus. And, and that's what we are called to do is to give a reason for why do you follow Jesus? And so whenever I get to have this conversation and it's my favorite conversation, whenever somebody tells me, I got a son, I got a granddaughter, I got somebody in my life, you know, they're not sure they believe all of this. Would you talk to them? I'm like, yes, 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 yes. Clear my schedule for the rest of the day. I want to talk about this forever because I think this is such a big deal and for me I believe in the resurrection of Jesus. I believe that he's the son of God, the savior of the world, because I believe that he was raised from the dead. And the reason that I believe that Jesus was raised from the dead is because there was a host of witnesses who were eyewitnesses of that event. And and the great thing for us, they wrote it down. They wrote down their eyewitness testimony. And and we have a historical record, a historically verified record of how authentic it is in the fact that these men recorded what they believed they saw. And even people who don't believe the scriptures and even people who are atheists and even people who are agnostics, they will concede that it's a historical fact that Jesus lived, it's a historical fact that he died, the fact that he was buried in a, borrowed man, in a borrowed tomb of a rich man and that his disciples believed after his death that he was raised from the dead. That's, that's what non-believing historians will say is fact. I believe that if anybody would have ever known if the thing were a hoax or not, it would have been Peter, it would have been James, it would have been John, it would have been Nathaniel, it would have been Bartholomew, it, it would have been Simon, it would have been those guys. Generation 1.0, they would have known. But yet those guys and those ladies who were scared to death of death, they met a resurrected Jesus and all of a the sudden they spent the rest of their lives sharing a message that ultimately cost them their life. And when they were given the opportunity to recant, they refused to recant because it wasn't what they believed, it's what they believed they saw that made all the difference in the world. Why do you believe that Jesus raised from the dead? Because there were eyewitnesses like Paul, who was once a Jesus hater, who became a Jesus follower, that history recognizes as a real man, that this is a legitimate thing that we have to deal with. I believe that Jesus was raised from the dead because James, the half brother of Jesus, who didn't believe in Jesus before the resurrection, actually believed on Jesus after the resurrection because he saw his brother die and he saw his brother come back to life. And then he decided, my half brother is my Lord and he spent the rest of his life and he gave his life for that. The 12 disciples, beyond that, 500 saw Jesus after the resurrection. And when these guys wrote this down, this eyewitness testimony, they wrote it before AD 70. Paul wrote a couple of his letters mid 55 AD, which means it wasn't 150 or 200 years after the fact, they wrote it within real time. And when they wrote these things down, they gave them in such a widespread way to people that could have fact checked them People had access to these letters and these letters were written and read publicly. And all of a sudden these folks could have went and they could have challenged these things. They could have challenged the details. They could have challenged that, hey, this is a hoax, this is not true, that this person doesn't even exist. But none of that happened. And out of the first century came the greatest movement that the history of the world has ever known that toppled an empire, that toppled paganism that had existed as a stronghold for a couple thousand years. And the only explanation is that Jesus must have died and really came back to life. And the only people that would have known any different would have been generation 1.0. People will die for a lie, but people will not die for what they willingly know is a lie. And they not only gave themselves, but they allowed their families to be put to death and they allowed their children to be put to death. Would you allow your children to be put to death for something you know to be a lie? Of course not, you're human. And so are they. And the only reason that makes rational, rational sense of all the evidence that we have is that Jesus must have been raised from the dead. History takes me to an empty tomb. Was his body stolen? Did the disciples take it? But faith, faith takes me a step further than those speculations to believe the eyewitness testimony of the disciples, to believe that Jesus really did really did experience resurrection from the dead. And if that's true, he must be who he says he is. And I have to believe what he says is true. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. And that those who come to him, he will in no wise reject. That's why I follow Jesus, because I believe that there is a historical reason. I believe it's the best explanation of the data. I believe that when you read through the scripture narratives of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, when you read the letters of Paul, when you know that we have creeds that date back to within a year after the resurrection, when people were declaring publicly the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, that's the best that history has to offer. Nothing else in history has as much validative proof to it as far as what was written down and recorded. And I mean proof as evidence. Can't prove it beyond a shadow of a doubt, but that's where faith comes in. And maybe today you're ready to take that step yourself. I'm gonna invite you to bow your heads for just a moment. If you're here and you've never trusted Jesus, if you're here and you've never taken a step of faith, Maybe some of these things that we've talked about have been a reason for you not to embrace faith or to follow Jesus. And maybe you're realizing that some of your aversions are not really aversions at all. Maybe, maybe your pushback has not been against Jesus. Maybe it's just been against a particular version of faith that you were presented with years ago. And maybe you're here and you're ready to take a step that responding to the evidence and responding to rational thought and What could truly explain these things? Maybe you're ready to take a step by saying a simple prayer like this, Heavenly Father. I have lots of questions still, maybe even some doubts, but in this moment, I wanna take a step of faith. I wanna trust Jesus with my life. I wanna trust that in some way he died in my place. He was innocent, though I'm guilty so that I could take his innocence and be freely forgiven forever. That you love me no matter what I do and no matter who I am. And I trust that today, I hold on to that today and I take a step of faith in your direction. And I do it in Jesus name, amen. Hey, if you uh, prayed a prayer or something similar like that or maybe throughout this series, I would say let somebody know, don't leave here without saying, to someone, maybe someone you came with, maybe someone at Next Steps, maybe one of our pastors down front here uh, after the service, just say, hey, I took a step of faith today. What, 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 What needs to happen next? What can I do to continue to take another step of faith? I think that you'll be glad that you had that conversation with someone. Hey, uh, in just a moment before we leave, uh, some of our volunteers are gonna come forward and we're gonna do what we do every Sunday. We're gonna receive our offering. And and I just wanna say thank you so much for your generosity and thank you for allowing us to have a church where we can talk about some of these things, even when we always don't have the full resolution of what we're talking about, that we can struggle together through some of this. We can wrestle with this together. and, And I'm so grateful that you allow us to have that type of place. I think as parents, we ought to be grateful concerning our kids and our grandkids that, that this is the type of church we have. I think that we should be grateful that we can invite our friends that have these questions to our church and, and let them know it's okay. We do too. We're still asking some of these questions, but the one thing that we're settled on is Jesus. And we believe that Jesus is the savior of the world. And we, we believe that he is worth trusting our lives to and following. And we think that Jesus is the biggest deal of all. And so I, I just wanna thank you for the type of church that you've allowed uh, to, to be here at the Creek Church. And uh, so as we give, uh, just thank you. And uh, let's pray together as our volunteers come forward. Father, thank you for the opportunity to give. Thank you for the opportunity to be here to get together today. And I pray, Father, that you would just, uh, just continue to honor uh, what what's going on here in such a way that uh, those that may have questions and doubts and, and, and may not be followers would, would at least feel comfortable to be here uh, to watch and, and to see, uh, and God, to allow you to perhaps have an opportunity to speak into their hearts, in Jesus' name.